an Aer Lingus Vickers Viscount is flying to London from Cork when something goes terribly wrong. What caused this flight to crash into the ocean? Welcome back to the Hard Landings Podcast, everybody. I'm Nick. I'm Miranda. And I'm Christy. Hey. We Hello. all by ourselves today. We are. It's just the three of us. For now. Yeah. It's kind of a rare occurrence, actually, these days. Until later. We are recording two episodes today, for reference. Yes, we are. It's a lot. Also, the fan isn't running today, so we might sound a little different, because of the way that the audio process is a little different. Well, maybe not. Who knows? But... I don't know. The window is open, though, because it's actually nice outside. What? That being said... This is completely different, but it it crossed my mind. I realized I have no open Saturdays for the next three months. Yeah, that happens now. So, y'all, please be patient because we went from having some time to now I have no time. Right. We went from me having no time to you having no time. And then eventually when we get around to winter, we actually have time again. (laughs) So because that's month end for me. Well, yeah, but you come like January, February. We might actually have some time. Things might actually be feasible. So please be patient. Stuff might be coming out a little bit later. I try my best to remember, but I are, like I completely forgot until yesterday to do the blog post for these episodes. Yeah. Uh, so just like I said, be patient. Like the newsletter came out a lot later this month than normal. I was literally booked till eight o'clock every day and I woke up at six every day. So. Yep. Good times. It's good going to be a lot. So patience is is appreciated. Appreciated. Please and thank you. It's going to be what it's going to be for a little while. Yeah. Also, given the newsletter, you should check out the newsletter. We almost have 100 people on the newsletter list. Oh, wow. Wow. So uh, if you want to answer the trivia questions, if you want to see potential stuff coming up, if you want to see what we've already covered, maybe you're new and you don't know what we covered last month. Go ahead and sign up for the newsletter. I send it out toward the beginning of the month every month. That means we could get almost 100 answers on those questions, too. We never get questions. No, we never get very many. Very many for the trivia questions. So answer them because they're there. Rumor has it that they're particularly challenging this month. We, it's more like we ran out of things. Did we already? No, well, we're getting close to the end of the list, but we added it to it several months ago. Mm-hmm. And we made it harder the further yes. along it got. Because <laughs> we had to like dig deep and figure out like what was, like what is a good trivia question. So just yes. be aware. Also, you should check out the Patreon because Patreon's cool and a lot of the answers to the trivia questions come from Patreon. So That is true. Because we talk about it in the post episodes and things. So, so many times. And you can always try it. And if you decide you don't like the post episodes or you don't like any of the stuff, you can always cancel it. There's a lot so, of stuff. There's so much stuff. Blooper reels, A plus material, my friends. Yes. Patreon is a big place for us. We have so much stuff there. You get stuff like physical stuff and you get all this extra listening stuff. Yes. So you should definitely check it out. Let's see. I don't know if there's any other. We don't have any new patrons, as far as I'm aware. No, I don't think so. I haven't seen anything new. Check out the merch page. Get some merch. Merch! Merch is cool. You also get a merch discount if you're a patron, just saying. Most of our friends have started rocking some... Merch. Like, our close friends have been rocking some merch, and it weirds me out to, like, see our logo on other people now. (laughs) (laughs) And on the regular. Yeah. I'm getting a little more used to it, but it's still, like, weird, like, like... I don't think I've seen Kaylin in like the last two months without Hard Landings merch. I know. Kaylin's always wearing her Hard Landings merch. Yes. Thanks, Kaylin. We appreciate you. It was on Thursday, too, when we were at band. Yep. Kaylin had a Hard Landing shirt. Sometimes she'll wear her hat. Sometimes she'll wear her tank top. Right. Always rocking something. We, anyway. We solved Paige's aversion to fanny packs. Yes. Yes. Because ours is cooler like that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I have to say, for the fanny pack... I know, we're getting a little rambly. We'll start the episode in a second. Sorry, guys. It's going to be kind of a shorter episode anyway, so just be aware, they don't go very large. Right. There's um, that. They don't fit. Like, I can't fit it around my hips. Right. I can fit it around my waist, not my mm-hmm. hips. Do you and, try wearing it, like, over the shoulder like a lot of people do? I don't know if it would fit. It's right. such a Gen Z thing. That is. Oh, uh, that's is. how Paige wears theirs, though, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, I think so. So maybe. That's how a lot of people wear their... It. Things these days. They're I haven't tried it. Or if you're from the UK, a bum bag 
Right. Oh, you damn we'll, weirdos. We'll leave it there. Okay. What are we covering today, Nick? Today. We are still covering. <laughs> this is an extension of. Yes. Aer Lingus Flight 712, part two. Yeah. I don't know. I'm pretty sure we said this last week, but thanks, Bob and Connor. Yes. So you might recall how things went last week. They went? I don't actually, which I'm glad that you're going to do a recap because I actually don't remember what happened. I'm going to do a very brief recap. I'm not going to cover the whole thing all over again. The The gist of this, getting into it, though, is there is a second report. We covered the first one from 1970. The accident occurred on March 24th of 1968. So the report was about two years after the accident. The second report came out because the first report had no cause. It said, eh, eh, we don't know. We don't know. They literally had no clue. They didn't have much to say in that report. There was no recommendations because they just didn't know. So there's a second report, which isn't actually a report. It is called a study. And it came out in 2000. Actually, it came out in 02. But the study began in 2000. And the reason they did this study was because this was the deadliest accident in Ireland's history. And no one was necessarily happy with the lack of answers. Particularly because there was a lot of conspiracies around it. Over the years, it was in a lot of TV shows. It was on a lot of radio shows. It's talked about in books and in newspapers. And there were so many different conspiracies about this because there was no cause. And it was the deadliest accident in Ireland's history. Nobody survived. Is it still? Yes. Or did Manx surpass it? No. It's Manx still- was the deadliest since, but this was still deadlier. Okay. Bigger airplane. So, for those of you that need a recap, this was a Vickers Viscount 803 quad engine prop plane. It was a flight from Cork to London. Again, love Cork. Yep. Crashed off the coast of Ireland near Tusker Rock after making a distressing radio call Mm -hmm. and flying in one area for over 30 minutes. The aircraft impacted the water and broke up. The rescue operation took some time, but eventually when they found the airplane, much closer to Tusker Rock than they actually thought, and much closer to land, right, much closer to land than they thought, all 61 on board perished in the accident, which is still a pretty high number for even that era. Mm -hmm. It's a lot of people. The only information they had from this accident really was the radio calls, which wasn't much, except that they were descending, spiraling. (laughs) From rapidly 12 or 5,000 feet. Right. And they couldn't determine exactly which one of those two, but it didn't really matter much. All they know is eventually the airplane disappeared and they found the wreckage in the water later. They found a trim tab from the elevator separated from the elevator and quite a distance away from the actual wreckage. And they only recovered about 70% of the airplane from the water. The parts that they did not recover all came from the tailplane. Everything rear of the rear pressure bulkhead. So, remind me, because again, it's been a, a week, and mm-hmm. I have a lot, I did a lot this week. Yes. Did they determine that the tab mm-hmm. from the elevator? Mm-hmm. Yes, from the port elevator. Yep. Did Was that determined to be, like, an issue that it came, like, it came off before they crashed, or? Yes, they know that it came off, it separated from the aircraft before it impacted the water. They know that because of the distance it was from the rest of the wreckage. Okay. What they don't know is why. Mm-hmm. And they don't know how much it actually impacted the aircraft in terms of an accident. Because it's, it's, a trim tab is pretty important. Don't get me wrong. It's very important. But ultimately, the airplane still flew around for quite some time in a seemingly mm, not great configuration. So all that to say. So, okay. So maybe <laughs> I, I don't understand correctly. Uh-huh. Can you properly fly the aircraft without an elevator trim tab? Depends on the aircraft. Most of the time, no. Okay. However, with this aircraft, they could not directly determine, with this accident and with this aircraft, they could not directly determine if that is actually what caused the accident. I I guess there's no way to know for sure, because that was before black boxes, but Mm -hmm. I don't know. I was just curious, because I kind of remember going over that, but kind of not remember going over that. I understand. We will chat so much. So. Yeah. Okay. So, I'm going to read just very briefly the historical recall section of this study. It says at the top of the study report, but it is a study. They clearly they clearly state that. <laughs> this is not the report. 
right? This is a study. And it was quite the study. It's a 193-page PDF, so... Yeah, that's pretty hefty. It's not small. All right, this is reading directly from the historical recall section. Aer Lingus, Vickers Viscount 803, Echo India Alpha Oscar Mike, flying from Cork to London, crashed into the Irish Sea near Tusker Rock in County Wexford on 24th March 1968. All 61 persons on board were killed. A report on the investigation into the accident was published by the Irish Department of Transport and Power in June 1970. The report concluded that there was not enough evidence available on which to reach a conclusion of reasonable probability as to the initial cause of the accident. In view of the circumstances pertaining at the time and certain unsubstantiated hypotheses raised in the report, the cause of the accident remained controversial. Indeed, at least one book, many newspaper articles, and television programs continued to raise various scenarios, including conspiracy theories, 30 years after the accident. As a result of the continued speculation, the Irish Minister for Public Enterprise, Mrs. Mary O'Rourke, TD, in cooperation with the UK government, requested an official review of all relevant files to see if the cause of the accident could be determined. The report of this review was published in June 2000. The comprehensive review report found errors and omissions in the maintenance of the Viscount-type aircraft by the operator, Air Lingus, and by the Airworthiness Surveillance Office of the department. No evidence of UK involvement in the occurrence of the accident was found, nor was there any evidence that the UK as a state conspired against the investigating body in an attempt to conceal any facts. Consequently, the responsible minister, Mrs. Mary O'Rourke TD, commissioned an independent team of aeronautical experts with the objective, quote, to shed further light on the causes of the accident, end quote, by making a study of all available documentation, material, and or sources. This report sums up that study. Okay. So that's how this opens. So... Did it say, like, I know, I think we talked about this, but they, mm-hmm. they originally got help from the UK. Yes. Right? Yes. And they were like... That became a contentious point. Really? Yes. That became a contentious point because a lot of conspiracy theorists believe that the UK was trying to hide something by being involved in the investigation. What? They had weapons tests going on in the area. Missiles tests. The UK did? Yes. Why would they try to hit... They weren't, and that's what they were trying to get at, is like maybe they hit the airplane on accident and they were trying to cover it up. Okay, but if that were to happen... So, Mm -hmm. listen, people. Listen here, Linda. Okay. (laughs) Listen, Linda. Listen, Linda. Here's the issue with with the suggestion that it got hit by a missile, okay? Usually, when a plane gets hit by a missile, more than just a part of it comes off. You're correct. Separate from where the plane crashes, right? And usually the plane can't keep flying for like half an hour. Yeah, like this was the 1960s, right? Like the the missiles were not, it's not like they were small. Right. I guarantee you if this was hit by a missile, they Mm -hmm. would have found more than just the elevator trim tab. (laughs) Yes. And they would not have kept flying. For the extended period of time they did. You would be correct. Because science. (laughs) Right. So obviously there's a lot going on there. There's a lot of conspiracy theories they were trying to to quash with this study. So we'll get into it. Here's why I hate conspiracy theories, because they're not based in facts. You're correct. They're based in like... Hunches and speculation. But there was no actual like thing about this. So clearly they're lying. No, that's not... No. Anytime you leave too much open for interpretation, you leave it open for conspiracy theories. Yes. That's what you can assume about major events in history like aircraft accidents, is that anytime there's too many open-ended areas of that story, there leaves it open for interpretation and for conspiracy theories. I'm just saying it, that conspiracy theory doesn't make sense. Right. Just saying. So. Okay. My turn? Your turn. This study was performed at the request of the minister in charge of the Department for Public Enterprise by a new board of investigation with the assistance of the since-formed Air Accident Investigation Unit, or AAIU, as well as many other helping agencies, including the AAIB, the CAA, the Irish Aviation Authority, the ICAO, and numerous air accident investigation bodies who provided relevant accident reports. The sections of this study include a study of accidents similar to Aer Lingus 712, an examination of the wreckage, again, a consideration of probabilities, and a discussion of the witness evidence. How would they be able to look at just, like, pictures and stuff? So, yes. Appendix 4 of the original report was not published. Oh. And contained all of that. Oh. Got it. Right. 
The British CAA provided a list of 1,300 occurrences related to UK-registered Viscounts. 34 were due to icing, maintenance errors, corrosion, mechanical deformations, and or poor electrical continuity. 54 were corrosion or fatigue. 7 were in-flight depressurizations. 13 were bird strikes. And 31 were related to skin and windscreen damage. Also not great. Of these and a couple of others from different countries, 135 accidents were reviewed, half of them before Flight 712. 17 were deemed relevant, and out of these 17, 6 were V700 types, 8 were V800 types, and 1 was a Vanguard 951. Additionally, a number of accidents on other aircraft types were reviewed with some possible relevance. Of these 17 accidents selected, most of them did have a probable cause, including icing, stall, bird strike, structural fatigue failure of the tail, elevator tab circuit failure, rear pressure bulkhead failure, alternative power supply disruption, propeller control unit contamination, propellers entering ground fine pitch and flight, door strike, and door flapping. Investigators then broke them down into elementary sequences to find similarities. Flight 712 was broken down into these elementary sequences. Initial loss of control. An initial sudden event that was sudden with... Sorry. <laughs> that's what they said. Initial that sudden seems, event that's sudden. Uh, that seems... An initial uh, sudden event that was sudden without any precursor announcement to the crew. The loss of control showed abrupt pitch down or sudden lurch and yaw. The loss of control showed a quick nose down attitude with airspeed increasing slowly due to propeller drag. Flutter in the flight controls resulting in a violent shaking yoke. And abnormal attitudes in pitch angle of attack and side slip with violent accelerations up to 3 Gs up and down and side to side, which could Oof. overstress the structure. Yes. Recovery from the initial out-of-control phase, either due to aerodynamic and engine control or pilot action, the airflow circulation was regained. The flight continued in reduced stability with low or very low attitude. The sound of engine compressor surge was suspected as well as explosive relight and emission of black smoke. In the last phase, non-recoverable loss of control. Mechanical qualities were degraded by overstressing and possible separation with ineffective crew action. From there, investigators compared each elementary sequence and qualified them as similar, different, or not applicable. And then they ranked them both by number of similar elementary sequences as well as qualitatively on the identification of similar groupings of elementary sequences. From here, we will kind of do a choose-your-own-adventure. I will summarize these briefly, and Miranda, if you want to know more about one in particular, stop me, and I will read more from the report. Okay. Number one, icing. There were three accidents reviewed from 1960, 1977, and 1994. The similarities came from being sudden upsets with no precursor, abrupt pitch down, partial recovery, and ultimate loss of control. The score was three similarities and four differences. Stall. One accident from 1967 was analyzed. The similarities were an abrupt loss of altitude, no communication to ground, and flying for 25 minutes erratically with fluttering, gushing black smoke, and zigzagging before dropping vertically in a spin. The score was three similarities and four differences. Do you want me to read more about that one? Was it from a fire? What? What's with the smoke? Uh, uh, that's usually due to, like, compressor surges. In the engines. From It's stalling? not abnormal. Were the... En- the engines were stalled, so they... Well, yeah. Put, put, boom. Put, 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 boom. Put, 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 boom. Here, let me like grab that one so I can read more about it. Okay, so the description of this flight. During a training flight for demonstration of recovery from the approach to the stall and taking appropriate recovery action, something happened which caused the aircraft to descend without requesting ATC clearance to an altitude very much lower than that for which it was cleared or at which, during the training exercises scheduled the aircraft would normally operate. Low cloud base, restricted visibility in the area. Configuration was landing gear down, up, down, flaps. I don't know what that means. Occurrence, the triggering factor. For reasons which cannot be determined, the aircraft lost much more altitude than usual for a stall recovery demonstration. After a period of low altitude disabled flight, the aircraft entered an unintentional stall and probable spin at a low altitude from which recovery was not possible. No communication was received from the flight crew by any ground station. From several witness statements, the aircraft went along a bumpy trajectory in and out of clouds during 25 minutes, flying erratically, fluttering and gushing black smoke as the engines revved up. The aircraft zigzagged, appearing to drop vertically in an incipient spin. For the wreckage, it was confined to a rectangular area of 400 by 150 feet. The aircraft was in an inverted position, consistent with a nearly vertical spin. Fire destroyed the nose, center section, and flight deck. The tail unit and extremely rear part of the fuselage were comparatively unaffected. Sludge was found in the number one, two, and three engines oil filters. What? The immediate probable cause of impact 
with the ground was an unintentional stall and an incipient spin at a low altitude from which recovery was not possible. There's not enough evidence to determine the circumstances leading to the initial loss of altitude to the disabled flight. The score for this one was three similarities and four differences. So... Was that a training flight? Yes. That's unfortunate. Uh-huh. A yeah. training for a stall recovery. Yikes. You know, all this just tells me is how many accidents... Like, we get, we take for granted so bad how few accidents we have these days. To put into <laughs> perspective of the section that I'm covering, that was step two, where there are 12. Cool. So let me keep going. Bird strike. One accident from 1962 was analyzed. Ahem. <clears throat> Similarities included a sudden event without precursor, sudden pitch down and descent, ultimate loss of control, and part separation before crash. That all sounds familiar. The score was four similarities, two differences, and one not applicable. Structural failure. Two accidents from 1965 and 1974 were analyzed. Similarities include abrupt pitch down or yaw, ultimate loss of control, and some part separation. The score was three similarities, three differences, and one not applicable. Elevator tab circuit failure. One accident was analyzed from 1980. Similarities include prolonged disabled flight, degradation of flight, ultimate loss of control, and part separation. The score was four similarities, one difference, and two not applicables. Rear pressure bulkhead failure. One accident was analyzed from 1971. Similarities include sudden upset with no precursor, loss of control, and separation of the tail plane. The score was three similarities, three differences, one not applicable. The biggest reason why I don't think that is... What happened? They they did not recover the tailplane from the water. That doesn't mean it wasn't near the wreckage, but they didn't make that clear. It was not found. And right. That doesn't mean it wasn't near the wreckage. So there are parts that they describe as being in the wreckage and not recovered. Right. The tail did not qualify as that. So it was not found near the wreckage at all. Which is fair. But again, the airplane kept flying. And you can't so, fly without a tail. That doesn't let, mean it wasn't near the let wreckage. Let me keep going. It just I wasn't have, with the central I part. have so much, and actually rear pressure bulkhead was probable. Yeah, I believe that. So, alternative power supply disruption. One accident was analyzed from 1968. Similarities were ultimate loss of control and separated pieces. The score was two similarities, four differences, one not applicable. Propeller control unit contamination. One accident was analyzed from 1964. Similarities include an engine surge, initial loss of control, sudden lurch and yaw, followed by abrupt pitch down and loss of control. What does it mean by contamination? Like in the oil? So the probable (laughs) cause of the accident of Viscount registration, Charlie Foxtrot, Tango Hotel Tango, on June 13th, 1964, was problems with the number two engine were probably caused by the presence in the PCU of foreign material, pieces of a rubber O-ring. Mm. Oh, that sounds like a challenger problem. How they came to contaminate the pitch propeller control unit could not be determined. Hmm. That's quite, that's not great. I don't like that. Uh-huh. There's there's a lot of those. So uh score here was three similarities and three differences and one not applicable. Uncommanded ground fine pitch in flight. One accident was analyzed from an unspecified year. Thank you. Great. Similarities include a sudden event with no precursor, initial loss of control, and the same attitude from the initial loss of control. The score was three similarities, three differences, one not applicable. Fantastic. In-flight door separation from a door strike. This one was one of actually the more likely ones to me. Door strike? But I know what you're going to say, so just go ahead. One accident was analyzed from an unspecified year. Similarities included a sudden event with loss of control with the same erratic attitude and a recovery as well as a part separating. The score was five similarities and Mm -hmm. one difference. Right. What's the one difference? That it was a door? Probably the door. (laughs) What does it mean by a door strike? The door struck the tail, the the elevator trim tab and removed it. The door came off? Yeah. Oh. That's what I'm talking about. Oh. (laughs) The door came off and hit the elevator trim tab and removed it wait how would the door come off that, that can happen to these older airplanes the baggage door opened separated oh. became attached to the right tail plane this altered the tail's aerodynamic characteristics so much that the aircraft became uncontrollable during pitch instability both the wings and tail became overstressed and detached this to me seems like the most likely the door locking mechanism was misrigged and the door was not fully locked at the time of takeoff Oh, that sounds like a DC-10 problem. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. A big difference here. Wings were found with the wreckage. Right. But the tail wasn't, which is interesting. So... I would also say, like, they, 
would they know if the door was missing? Was the door yes. one of the things that was missing? I will get there. Give me time. Okay. Right. Um, so the difference that they deemed was the ultimate phase is different since in the case of the door strike, the final effect could be quite random, making the loss of control not irreversible. So the flight 712 was able to recover for a while. Right. This flight could not. That's the difference. Yeah. When you When you don't have a tail, you can't fly. Turns out. Yeah. Turns out. Case 11, door flapping in flight. I hate that, too. Yep. What's with the door problem? <laughs> <laughs> Old airplanes, man. Those doors were not... They, they didn't realize how many forces was they it, need to withstand. Was it also a baggage door? They didn't realize how many forces these doors really needed to withstand over its well, service life. And, like, the DC-10 had, like, the door was locked the wrong way. Like, the way they locked it made it super easy for it to come It was out. very easy for it to be mislatched. Yeah. Cargo door. Okay, yeah, so it was a cargo door. So it could be a very similar thing. So one accident... easy to mislatch, clearly. One accident was analyzed from 1959. The similarities were a sudden event with a sudden pitch down or yaw and plunge in altitude. The score was three similarities, no differences, and four not applicables. Why? It didn't crash. Oh, it landed? Yes. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of not applicables there. And lastly, unexplained loss of control. One accident was analyzed from 1963. The similarities were an abrupt pitch down or yaw, loss of altitude... Ultimate loss of control and part separation. The score was four similarities, one difference, and one NA. So how did the scoring come out? What was the difference? They were unable to regain control at any point. Oh, okay. So how did the scoring come out? Well, they created a ratio of similarities to differences, removed the NAs from the score of seven sequences, and ranked the events in order from most similar to least in the following order. In first place, door flapping. Yeah. In second place, door strike. Yeah. In third place, elevator tab rupture. Okay. In fourth place, bird strike. Hmm. In fifth place, a tie between all of these, with three similarities and three differences. You might recall I said that a lot. Structural failure, bulkhead failure, PCU contamination, and uncommanded ground fine pitch in flight. In ninth place, tying these two, icing install. And in last place, alternative power supply disruption. I highly doubt it was icing or install. They're pretty down on the list, so I think they agree. I, yeah, I Wait, feel the I same. Think, I think we went over that last week, too. Like, I'm pretty sure it wasn't icing and it wasn't a stall. Yes, but we are being very thorough. Yes. I, because agreed. I'm not even halfway through my notes. I'm just saying, it sounds like it's not either of those. So that was the first part of the study, was comparing the accident flight to numerous previous flights. Now for the technical analysis of the accident flight. Appendix 4 of the 1970 port was not published and it contained an excellent expert examination of the engines, propeller, equipment, and systems of the accident aircraft. Let's start with the engines. All four propellers and three of the engines were recovered and examined. Engine number four was not recovered, but it was seen in the main wreckage location. Based on the state of the propellers, investigators deemed that all four engines were attached at impact and producing low power. None of the propellers were feathered, indicating that a major engine failure did not occur. But what about the smoke that multiple witnesses reported? The study of relevant accidents actually revealed a number of cases where misadjustments and unusual acceleration forces provided abnormal fuel flow, which resulted in smoke emission despite normal engine function. So if it was burning too rich, I think is what normally produces smoke mm -hmm. because the combustion equation can't actually combust everything. Right. Don't, I'm not a chemist. Don't come for me. No, that sounds right, though. The original report concluded that all four engines were functioning at a closed throttle and the impact speed was less than 130 knots, so they were all probably at, like, idle. Flight controls. Although not found, there was nothing to suggest a defect in the ailerons. Or defect, sorry. The upper two-thirds of the fin and rudder were recovered in one piece. Investigators determined that the fin, rudder, and tab were attached at impact and there was no evidence of damage or defect. But what about the elevator? Well, you might recall that uh, not all of the tail was found. Right. Quote, it was not possible to eliminate the possibility of a defect or failure in the elevator and or tailplanes having contributed to the accident as both elevators, both tailplanes, and the tailplane center section and the tail cone and the rear pressure bulkhead were not found. Mm. End quote. When they, where they crashed, was mm -hmm. it in shallower waters? Yeah, I mean, the airplane was only 234 feet underwater. Okay, that's Ooh. not that shallow, though. That's still pretty shallow. It's not that shallow, but it's shallow enough you can dive to it. Which is a big difference from a lot of other accidents we can talk about. That's fair. They will never be able to get MH370 from diving because it is clearly not in shallow it's water. Deep. We would know if it was in shallow water with today's technology. Yeah. It's not. Well, they would have <laughs> found it 
pretty soon after it crashed if it was in shallower water. Right. No. Because you can see. It, it's deep. Yeah. They're not going to be able to get it that easy. Okay. Systems. First system, air conditioning pressurization. No pathological evidence of a sudden decompression was found. So of the limited number of bodies they were actually able to analyze, there was no evidence that there was a sudden decompression, which is interesting. Electrical system. There was sufficient material recovered that provided proof that both AC and DC power were on at impact. Autopilot. A defect was on the maintenance records when the aircraft was purchased from KLM, but analytical ground and flight tests proved that the defect would not have caused the accident, and the investigators determined that the crew could have easily overridden any autopilot abnormal behavior given A, how long they were in the air, and B, based on the fact that they were flying in good visual conditions. Mm-hmm. Door strike. The Viscount had a record of door defects and separations, as you may have uh, gathered. Yeah. The UKCAA found that over the last 10 years of service, 20 door problems had been reported. Yikes. See, this is why, to me, it's the most likely scenario that something happened with the door. A study of this was also included in Appendix 4 of the 1970 report, which again was (coughs) not published. And they comprehensively covered this topic. There were three entrance doors above the floor line, one freight door above the floor, and two cargo hold doors below the floor line. Evidence shows that four of the doors were closed at impact, but neither the starboard rear cargo door nor the starboard rear freight door were found. It was deemed impossible to state with any certainty whether or not one of these doors may have struck the tail. There was one fatal accident in June of 1981 where an Avro 748 had a rear baggage door open, separate, and become attached to the starboard tail, as we discussed. Because of the altered aerodynamic characteristics, the aircraft became uncontrollable and had a very uncontrollable pitch. As such, both wings and the tail overstressed and separated. One thing that held investigators back from this theory was that it was the port side elevator spring tab that was found remotely, not the starboard side. This would indicate a port side failure, but they also couldn't determine whether or not a door strike to the starboard tail could have affected the port side tail. Right. As such, the scenario of a door strike remains a possibility. Bird strike. Once again, we discuss UA Flight 279, where a Viscount was lost due to a bird strike with a whistling swan on the port tailplane. To summarize, on November 23, 1962, a Viscount 754D struck a swan out of a flock at 6,000 feet, and it penetrated the port tailplane 49 inches from the root, causing the outboard 11 feet to separate, and the remaining inboard section later separated. That's all. This imposed severe downloads on the starboard tailplane, which then failed in bending. Well, that's intriguing. That all sounds... suspicious. Yes. But it also would have shown overstressing to the wings, as happened with a loss of a Convair 580 in September of 1989 when the tail separated due to fatigue. It's interesting that UA-279 didn't have the wings separate after the loss of the tailplane, because then all of that stress is on just the wings. Right. Mm-hmm. The ICAO has a, fun fact, statistical unit specializing in bird strikes called the IBIS system, which is hilarious. Yes. IBIS is a kind of bird. Yes. They had a historical record of 25 bird strikes between 10,000 and 25,000 feet, one of which was a Viscount at 19,000 feet over the Irish Sea in July of 1981. Oh, frickin' up there. Based on this analysis, investigators deemed a bird strike possible. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I can agree. Fuselage failure. There had been two prominent fatal accidents regarding the failure of the rear pressure bulkhead. One was a Vickers Vanguard in October of 1971 at a cruising altitude of 19,000 feet. When the bulkhead failed, the cabin differential pressure of 5.75 pounds per square inch, or PSI, caused a structural failure and in-flight separation of the outer two-thirds of both tailplanes. This failure was due to extensive intragranular corrosion. Say that ten times fast. Along the lower edge of a redux-bonded doubler. Hey! Stop! <laughs> and a blocked drain hole, which allowed fluids such as toilet spills and hydraulic oil to accumulate in the area. Why do people think doubler plates are a fix-all? They don't! You know, they still use them today. A lot! As a temporary fix? Right. Great! Not as a permanent fix on an airplane! We've covered multiple incidents, but that's just not good. Speaking of, the other accident was one you might find familiar. I did not look up the episode number. I apologize. Chalk? Japan Airlines Flight 123. Uh, yeah. Oh. Uh, the, the deadliest uh, single. I, ju- I just put it on the website. What was it? 
the deadliest single aircraft accident in history. It was like last August. <laughs> Fatigue yeah. cracking from an improper repair resulted in the rupture of the bulkhead. Investigators were less interested in this one as it posed fewer similarities than the Vanguard did. But upon examination, the Viscount didn't have enough corrosion to deem a defect anywhere, and the pressure differential in this aircraft was considerably less and did not have a doubler installed. Its two corroded rear belly skin panels had been replaced in 1967, indicating that sufficient inspection had been performed, and it would be difficult for extensive corrosion necessary for a bulkhead rupture to remain undetected. So, although the structure was not recovered or seen at the wreckage field, investigators deemed it difficult to consider this a cause. Flutter! Which is different from flutter-tonguing. Yes. In 1980, a Viscount H-12 was operating in Indonesia when it suffered a failure of the elevator spring servo tab circuit, and the tail separated, and the crew lost control of the aircraft. It's a very specific thing. This happened at 14,000 feet, and the crew transmitted a mayday call that the aircraft shuddered before the tail separated. Investigators found that the chain of events began with a fatigue failure of the spigot in the elevator spring tab operation mechanism, which allowed for a spring tab free flutter in the tab, elevator, and tailplane. A flutter such as this creates a situation in which low cycle fatigue may take place due to elevated loads, and the fatigue failure occurred in the port tailplane spar upper boom and fitting. I have no idea what that is. Wow. In reviewing the tab maintenance, it was found that there is a tab free play limit that must be inspected. The aircraft manual states that the maximum allowable free play for the 700 and 800 series was 0 0.10 inches and 0 0.05 inches for the 810 series. If this had been exceeded, it could eventually induce a failure of the tailplane. But no one knows when that was last checked by Aer Lingus, though it should be inspected every 900 flight hours. All in all, based on this technical analysis, investigators deemed a door strike, bird strike, metal corrosion, or other maintenance as possible causes, and they deemed metal fatigue or flutter as probable. The most probable failure components were the tailplane, elevator, and or the pitch control systems. Quote, a structural failure of the port tailplane is consistent with the evidence relating to the loss of flight 712. There are a number of possibilities which could explain the separation of whole or part of the tailplane, but an analysis of the service history of the type suggests that this may have resulted from fatigue failure of the main spar upper boom or attachment fitting initiated or exacerbated by excessive spring servo tab free play, end quote. And that's all I have. It's quite the complicated thing, that last one. It's not, I don't know. There's a part that's not supposed to move too much, and if it moves too much, then you get a flutter. And if you get a flutter, then everything breaks. Yeah, it just falls apart. I can understand why. I mean, vibrations, frequencies yes. fall apart. It happens. But I thought it was interesting that that had never been considered in the previous flights. I never mentioned any of that. Right. So. I still think the door is the most likely thing there. I do. I don't know. I'm also intrigued by a bird strike. Yes. Bird strikes. Most yeah, definitely. That's very probable. It's ridiculous and amazing that a bird strike on an airplane like this could just remove the whole rear end. It's but, happened. But it's happened. Well, yeah, and that's alarming. And that's it doesn't why, do it all at once. Right. But it doesn't happen anymore to any other airplane, nor has it happened to pretty much any other airplane, because that's strange. They also fly at much higher altitudes now and much faster. Yeah, but even when they fly low and they hit birds, it doesn't usually remove massive sections of airplane. Turns Birds out. usually don't do much to airplanes. Eh. I mean, don't get me wrong. You get them in the engine, yeah, that sucks. But usually, other than that, not deadly. Not deadly. Bird strikes just suck, that's all. Yep. That's usually it. But this? also, the way that we've developed the skins of aircraft and things have changed. Yes. We went from making them out of soda cans <laughs> to making them a lot stronger than that, and yet just as light. Where literally you could poke a hole in it with your finger. So that was sections... Up to section four of the study. Nick is going to cover section five and section six. Right. After the break. The break. Okay, we're back. Yes, I am covering section five and section six. Section five was technically the vast majority of this study. However, I have summarized it very short because they wrote a lot of words on a lot of pages to say not a lot of things. <laughs> so... I took the time to go through the whole thing and very briefly summarize the very few things they actually said within Section 5, which quite literally was over 100 pages of this 193-page study. What Section 5 really touched on was the conspiracy theories and the other 
information and factors that they had available to them. This is outside of the studies of other accidents and their similarities. This has more to do with the information that they knew and what people thought happened. So they started off with the big one, the military stuff, the military actions, because there were military tests in the area. They had boats doing missile tests. They had a missile test facility in the UK, just opposite Tusker Rock. And a lot of people came to believe that the airplane may have been struck by a missile. It don't make sense. A lot of people believed it was an accident. They believed that it was being covered up. There were witnesses that tried to back this up. Doesn't this sound familiar? To an accident that we won't cover. T-W-A-A-Hundo. We won't touch it. Right. Too contentious. Too many people that will say, you're lying. No. Anyways. On top of that, they believed there was this other vast group of people in Ireland and in the UK that believed that there had actually been a military aircraft in the area that had struck Aer Lingus Flight 712 and had caused it to crash. Now, the biggest reason they didn't consider that to be a thing is because there was no other wreckage found for any other aircraft, nor were there any other aircraft lost or missing, let alone people. Nor was there any reports of damaged aircraft anywhere. So, of course, the people who conspiracize about this still believe that this could be the case because they could cover it up and just say that. And, of course, yes. However, the study took a lot of things into account and really didn't find any of that. 30 years later, it still wasn't true. And on top of that, they say, okay, what if the airplane hit Aer Lingus 712 and then continued? Okay, great. They didn't find any evidence of impact from an outside object. That's the biggest reason why they say that. That that would leave paint transfer. Right. It still would leave parts of the other airplane. But again, we don't have the rear end of the airplane. So what can we actually prove? Not much. They even suggested a drone collision in 1968. Did they have Drones? Militaries were testing all sorts of things at the time. They're not the drones kind of things that we think about now, but they may have been radio-controlled objects of varying degree. So they summarized that whole thing in a section, and they actually found, this is the most interesting part, they actually found that this was possible, but not likely. All of that to say, because we don't have the rear end of the airplane, and we don't have enough proof that something didn't hit the flight. We can't discount it. So they have to say that it was possible, but not probable. They also suggested that another aircraft had hit it, a small aircraft, some sort, not military, or some other object, i.e. a bird, may have struck the airplane and of course caused this. This is also quite possible, and they even called this one probable. They call it probable not because it may have been another aircraft, but because it may have been another object i.e. a bird. It may have been a door from its own friggin' fuselage that caused the airplane to crash. So Basically, the odds of it hitting something were probable. Right. So to tie some of this together, they worked really hard, and they had actually put out a search for witness statements. And they went and found witness statements from news articles, from the original report, from other studies and documentaries, and they also went and found their own, they got their own witness statements from people that were willing to offer it up. And they pieced a lot of things together that they found actually painted a bigger picture of what was happening with this aircraft and what may have happened. And there's a lot of things that this also discounted as they got these witness statements, because of course, witness statements are never that reliable. A lot of times it was a witness statement of, oh, my brother heard an aircraft that sounded funny, flew over our house about this time, and then he heard a bang. Okay. That tells me absolutely nothing. So they had to go with a lot of these witness statements to, they had to get as many as they could, basically, to start piecing together what is similar in these witness statements to use as 
more likely true information about this accident. When they did that, they found that, of course, most of the time while the aircraft was making noise and flying over people's houses, they couldn't see it because there was a low-lying cloud layer. So even if it had been hit by something or if it was damaged, most of the time, most of the witnesses that supposedly saw or heard this airplane didn't actually see much of anything at all. The only ones that did were the couple that actually witnessed it crash into the water, the splash. Witnesses 17 and 19, if I recall. Right. They were the only ones that really actually saw something that was true, truly the accident itself. There were a handful of people that did claim to see smoke, this, that, or the other. Again, they can't really prove it. But it did manage to paint a little bit better picture about which direction the airplane may have flown during that half an hour that it was just milling about, not doing anything not hitting the water, and apparently not communicating with anybody, and yet being in a really horrible state. And there were claims of seeing pieces falling. There were claims of seeing other aircraft in the area nearby, which there were, (laughs) but they were just nearby and nothing more. One of those, you might recall, was even asked to do a search for the airplane after it disappeared from radar. So they kind of discounted a lot of these witness statements as such. However, they used that information to really just piece together where the airplane was flying and how long it lasted before it finally hit the water. And they had some rough ideas and better ideas of how things might have played out in those final minutes. However, there was also an ATC transmission, two little ATC transmissions to Shannon ATC that were not, they were in the original report, but they were basically discounted and they were brought to light again in this study, and they said these timings for these two radio calls would have been incorrect. The timing timing was wrong on these calls, because supposedly they seemed like pretty normal radio calls reporting in at certain reporting points that were also seemingly during the time that they were in distress. What? Right. So these two radio calls that came in from Shannon ATC, eventually the study found, were most likely incorrectly placed on a timeline. So the the recording itself, the timing of it was off. They didn't actually know when the timing of these two recordings fit into the aircraft's flight. However, it wasn't where they were recorded. That's the best thing they could determine. And more than anything, because there weren't they weren't very consequential reports or communications. Basically, it was them reporting that they were leveling out at 17,000 feet and then that they were at Bano at 17,000 feet. That was it. Like, they were two very, very short comms. And those two, like, they hadn't even been included in the story that I read last time. They were basically discounted. And part of why they were discounted is because they didn't, they couldn't figure out where it fit. So the study looked into this a lot further. But the study still found that these two radio calls ultimately didn't matter. While it placed a little bit more interest in the flight plan, the path, and the timing of everything... It doesn't actually help us know what happened. Right. That's what they said, is basically, this tells us absolutely nothing consequential about the accident. All it really did was give them maybe a little bit better timing once they figured out when these ATC transmissions more than likely actually happened. However, it still didn't tell them enough. It still didn't tell them enough to actually play out what happened in this accident. And neither did the witness statements. All the witness statements that came together basically told them roughly how long the airplane was still airborne in distress, its rough flight flight path, but better depiction than what they had in the original report, and ultimately that it hit the water. That's it. I mean, they really didn't have anything else. They, They said all of this is pretty much inconsequential. It doesn't tell us what happened in the accident. There wasn't enough in those witness statements to say there's enough similarities here to tell us for a fact that the airplane was on fire or that the rear end of the airplane was hanging off of the airplane or there was a hole in the airplane or there was parts falling off. There was nothing, there was not enough there to prove it. There was so many, it was all over the map. So the similarities that they had were locations and I would say sounds so they could determine that the airplane was in a certain area and in distress at low altitude, but that's about it. Brilliant. So let's talk about section six. Section six is really the summary of this 
whole study. The study, here's the things to consider when you consider what we're talking about with the study. They didn't have any material part of the airplane for this study to look at. They only had what was in the original report and in the original documents by the original investigators. They did not have any physical part of the airplane to investigate for this study. So they couldn't go back and analyze any of the material. They couldn't look at anything do from we, the accident itself. Do we know what happened to the original Not wreckage? sure. Most of the time, it's broken up and used, recycled, or, you know, pitched. Another big point that they hit in this study that is infuriating to some extent was maintenance records. Aer Lingus did not provide them any maintenance data for the airplane. Oh, great. Not only did they not provide any maintenance data for the airplane, it was because they didn't have it, so it wasn't provided to the original investigation either. On top of that, it was found that their history at the time of maintenance records and data was quite poor. And you might note from the number of accidents and incidents that they had and the number of reports that they had, their maintenance wasn't exactly top-notch. Stellar? No. So, while they couldn't recommend anything now, because this is now over 30 years later, at the time, it would have been a very just thing to, say, fix your maintenance program and your maintenance records, but they did. They did over time. Especially since the ICAO really came in and took over things when it came to maintenance records and said this is how all aircraft and airlines should operate. So, that really played into the fact that without that information... Mind you, remember, 1970, they were still kind of using some form of a standardized report the way that we know it now. However, this wasn't vastly controlled by the ICAO yet, the report format. When did that come in place? I can't remember. I don't remember. But the way that it's controlled now, how structured ICAO reports are, and especially even in 2000, they actually stated in Section 6 how the lack of maintenance data, the lack of material to actually physically inspect made it so that they could not produce an ICAO report style report. And they specifically said that that's why this is a study and not a yeah, not report, a report because they couldn't. However, this study was used to quote, shed light on the circumstances surrounding the accident end quote. So all they were really trying to do was prove more what they know and don't know. In regard to a collision with an object, the study found that this, quote, was technically possible, but it is impossible that after the collision, this unmanned aircraft be seen over Feathered, which is a location, a town, in the conditions reported by witnesses, end quote. So again, if something hit the airplane, nobody saw it because they were in the clouds. If something struck this airplane, nobody has a clue. Nobody actually knows. There's no proof of that. So it's possible, but it could not be proven. In regard to collision with another aircraft, this was found to be unlikely because there were never any other aircraft parts found and no other aircraft was reported missing or lost. Therefore, this was rejected as a whole by the study. It's very unlikely that they struck another airplane. It just really didn't happen. That not only is unlikely, it's very improbable. It's not that it's impossible per se, but we would have known about it. And 30 years later... They probably could have told us more about that had it actually happened. No, the information wasn't there. There was nothing there to hit, no other aircraft. So an object, yes. An aircraft, no. In regard to witness statements and info from the 1970 report, several reconstructions were possible, but nothing consequential was able to be determined. They did put a note in Section 6 about the crew's abilities, particularly because they know that they were flying around for a little more than a half an hour in a state of distress, the fact that they were able to keep the airplane airborne for that long when something was clearly Awry. quite wrong, structurally bad, the fact that the crew was able to maintain it flying for that long, they, they stated quite succinctly, spoke to their abilities, which is they were actually quite good pilots. And that may be the case, but unfortunately it didn't save them. So something went really horribly wrong. Something that caused the whole back end of the airplane to separate. That's pretty much all we know about it. So in the end, there was still no cause. Well, we don't know report. that the whole end did become unattached. Yeah. It's a theory. 
but there's more no, than likely. There's no conclusive thing that said it absolutely detached. Right. Well, there's no back end of an airplane to prove it. So. <laughs> yeah, but they wouldn't have flown for that long without a back end either. Right. But, so it might have come detached before they crashed. Right. But not when the initial elevator tab came apart. Right. That's more the point is more than likely something struck the elevator tab, caused it to separate caused the rear end, caused them to spiral, first of all, and then eventually caused them to flutter until the rear end more than likely separated. Yeah. I think that's the most likely incident here, but they do not state what they find is the most likely or quote-unquote probable cause. They don't have one. They still don't have one because there's just not enough information. So the study basically went in to disprove the conspiracy theories, but also just shed more light on what we do and don't actually know. What can we actually prove and disprove? And that's really all they did. They never came to a conclusion on this. So there wasn't anything they could do about it. There was no recommendations. There was no any like probable cause, nothing. If you don't know what happened, there's no way to know for sure. Right. And so with that, ultimately, the, the Viscounts continued to fly for a number of years, but they were phased out and they were also quite outdated over time. I mean, by 02, they probably weren't flown very Oh, God, much. no. No, they weren't flown at all. Are you kidding me? By 02, they would have been out the door. By 1980, they were probably being vastly phased out because, you know, the jet age. So that really pretty much sums up everything we can speak to on this accident. There's not much else. It's just, we just don't know, and we won't probably ever know. Even if they recovered the tail section of this airplane, I think it would be probably too deteriorated and too far gone to be able to make... Determine much. Yeah, to be able to make out what truly happened. Well, and to be honest, if they haven't found it by now, they probably aren't going to find it. No, they're not going to find it. It's probably buried in the ocean somewhere. Yeah. Buried under feet feet of silt. Yep. Maybe someday we'll have this crazy technology that's just going to start finding all the things we've lost at the bottom of the ocean. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, I imagine, I have to imagine with the way that technology progresses over time that eventually humans would get to the point, it's a very philosophical conversation, but we'd get to the point where we can truly just find literally everything that man has dropped at the bottom of the ocean and it'd be a very easy thing to retrieve. And we may be able to get the rest of this airplane at some point in time, but that may be millennia from now and it won't matter anymore. And maybe we'll be able to find MH370. Right. But you never know. Right. Because we still haven't found that plane. It's a 777 it's and it's almost, still not found. It's been om- almost <laughs> 10 years now. Oh, God. It turns out that a 777 actually isn't very big when it's in the ocean. It's a big airplane, just not when it's in water. No, because the ocean is vastly bigger. Yes. The and ocean scares me. We've got a lot of technology to find things underwater, but not enough. If That's you're not scared me. of the ocean, that is a very naive stance in life. I mean, I'm not scared of the close ocean. Like, when I'm, when I'm on a, a beach. Yeah, I like the beach. Although sometimes, like, there's sharks and I don't like sharks. In any case. All right. Well, so that's the extent. The conclusion to our episodes. Yes. On Aer Lingus Flight 712. Yes. I vote we don't do a post episode for this one. We only do a post episode for the next episode. In which case, if you're a patron. Sorry. Apologies. But we have to do dinner and we have to record a whole nother episode. And Nick's not done with his notes for the next episode. Which is true. But also... Because of timing and because of... But you'll get everything. an extra long post-episode for next week, so... Yes. Because that will tell you everything about everything that we didn't get to tell you on this one. Which includes my whole debacle of a week that happened last week that I was going to tell you about and never got to. After our trip. So, yeah. Check out the Patreon. I know not having a post-episode this week is like, well, why would I do that? Because there's so many other post-episodes. Oh my god, there's so many. And the reality is there's probably more time in post-episodes than there is episodes. Yeah. Because some of our post-episodes way exceed the length of the episode <laughs> that they belong to. Yeah, it's true. It's true. So we, we, I don't feel that bad when we have to skip one every once in a while. So that means don't, if you, if you notice there wasn't one posted, don't be mad. Don't be mad. We're, we're working on it, friendos. We got a double record today. It's probably going to happen again. In September. And Maybe. October. That is a possibility. It's going to happen. Like, be patient. The biggest thing is priority one is always getting the episode out. Yes. The main episode. So. Yes. So everyone can hear it. <laughs> right. We have to vastly prioritize that. Sorry, but patrons, thank you for your patronage. And there's a lot still there for you. So thank you so much for listening. We do appreciate it. Check out the merch page. Check out the Patreon. Check out all the stuffy stuffs. Yes. There you go. We hope you have a safe and healthy week. Catch you all next week. Keep, Keep your speed up. up.
Please like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Hard Landings Podcast and on Twitter at Hard Landings Pod. Subscribe and leave a five-star review on the platform you are using to listen. If you would like to see photos and sources for this episode, please visit us at hardlandingspodcast.com where you can also leave us feedback and ask questions. This episode was researched and written by Nick and Christy and edited by The Lovely Page. Our theme song was written by Miranda and performed by all three of us plus Leo. And our logo is by Naomi. Thanks for listening. Catch you next time.